Enjoy a typical afternoon in New York City. Who is that? Groceries, man. My name is Paul Kersey. How's my wife? I'm sorry. She died a few minutes ago, Mr. Kersey. Any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. Listen to the real. Give me the money. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Mugging has gone down by how much, sir? Nine fifty a week to four seventy. You reported last week. You understand not too many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade and turn himself into the police. Let's see the money, man. Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target. We want you to get out of New York permanently. Never make a death wish, because a death wish always comes true. And you get to love it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. I am your host, Scott White, and what am I talking about this time? I did a mini-review of Bronson's Loose, the book by Paul Talbot, making of the Death Wish movies. I just did a small, spoiler-free review. Now, this is going to be an in-depth review of the book. So there will be massive spoilers. So if you don't want to know what the book is about, just go back and listen to the non-spoiler review. The book starts off with a foreword by Andrew Stevens, who worked with Bronson on Death Hunt and 10 to Midnight. And he pretty much says what everybody else says about him. He kept to himself. He was professional. He wasn't overly friendly. But you could tell that Andrew Stevens had a fondness for Bronson. But we're going to go right into chapter one, making first Death Wish. And of course, most of us know that Death Wish was based on a book by Brian Garfield in 1972. He got the idea when he had a car with a leather, he had a convertible with a leather top, and somebody ripped open the leather top. Didn't do a lot of damage, didn't really take anything of value, but it just made him angry. He's just like, I want to get that punk who did that. So that's what led him to write Death Wish, the novel. And in Death Wish, the novel, the protagonist is named Paul Benjamin, and he is an accountant, and he is short and 
overweight, and I believe balding. So he's nothing like our protagonist in the movies. So that book was out there. It sold okay from what Garfield said. It wasn't really burning off the shelves, but it was an okay seller. And then Death Wish was purchased by Hal Landis and Bobby Roberts. They bought two of Garfield's novels. They bought Death Wish and Relentless. And they wanted Brian to write the screenplay to one of them. And Brian Garfield chose Relentless, which was turned into a TV movie in 1977 eventually. Not the Judd Nelson movie of the 80s or 90s. Brian Garfield felt like he could not turn Death Wish into a screenplay because most of it took place in the protagonist's mind, going over things that happened. So he felt just not be plausible to write this movie. So he wrote Relentless. So with the rights, they took it to Wendell Myers. He wrote The Poseidon Adventure, and they gave that to him, and so he expanded on it. One of the things in the movie that was not in the book, or was in the book, Vincent Gardenia's character, Gardenia, I hope I'm saying that light, right, and I hope I'm not saying the snack food. Vincent Gardenia played uh, Detective Frank Acha. Oh, man, Detective Frank Acha, O-C-H-O-A. Ocha? Acha? Ocha? That's the character that he plays. Having seen the movie, I should remember his name, but I don't. In the book, this detective is just mentioned in magazine and newspaper articles. He's never an actual physical character in the book. So Wendell brought him and made him a character in the movie. He's the one that's assigned to track down Kersey, or eventually who will become Kersey. The original screenplay, the ending was... In the book, his wife and daughter do get attacked. But the the punks that do it, they're never caught. And in the original screenplay, Paul Benjamin finds the three punks that attacked his family, and they end up killing him. And then the detective finds him, finds the body, and finds his gun, and then he's thinking about maybe becoming a vigilante himself. That's how the ending of the original Death Wish screenplay first draft. That's how it ended. And so they had this script, and they were shopping it around, and no major studio would take. Finally, United Artists. They bought the script. They were going to have Sidney Lumet who directed 12 Angry Men, amongst other uh, fantastic films, he was interested in directing it. And the writer said that the script was actually written for Jack Lemmon, which I can see from the character from the book. I could definitely see Jack Lemmon in this character in the movie as he was portrayed in the novel. Well, Sidney Lemmon fell through, but then Michael Winner came into the picture, and he was interested in directing it. But the thing was, they couldn't get any major star to star in it. Westerns all the time have the vigilante that come into town and clean up the town, but everybody was afraid that they couldn't do it in modern time. They couldn't do it in 1974 when this movie was being shot, or was going to be shot. 
And everybody, all the major stars, like Henry Fonda was offered it and he thought it was repugnant and he turned it down. They couldn't get anybody to star in this film. But then Michael Winner, who was working with Bronson on a film at the time, he actually convinced Bronson to star in this movie. So Michael Winner brought in Bronson. But even with Bronson's name, they couldn't get the film greenlit by United Artists. So here's what United Artists did. They gave the, the script to Winner. And they said, you shop it around, and if you can get it made, we want our money back plus interest. So that's what he did. He shopped it around, he shopped it around, and he finally got in touch with Dino De Laurentiis. Very famous producer, uh, was living at Rome at the time, was now living in the States. And Dino lived next door to an executive from Paramount. So Dino convinced this executive from Paramount, who already passed on the movie twice, to make the movie. So they're all set. They've got the money. They're going to start filming. They had to make a few more tweaks on the script. People thought that nobody would believe Bronson as an accountant, so they made him an architect. I don't see that much difference, but apparently made a huge difference in the, in the script. They also changed his name from uh, Paul Benjamin to Paul Kersey because apparently there was a character actor called Paul Benjamin at the time and they didn't want any confusion with that. Sort of like we have now with Mike Myers and Mike Myers. They didn't want that to happen. Also, they had it in the book. There are no scenes between Paul Benjamin in the book and his wife and his daughter who end up being killed and raped. That you know that happens when he finds out about this at the beginning of the book, and and then he goes on his spree. Making of the movie, they felt they needed to set this up to make the vigilante more sympathetic. So they shot in a scene where the Paul Kersey and his wife are vacationing in Hawaii, and it also sets up the scene later in the movie where he gets pictures. They take pictures in Hawaii. So it's all being able to build up to justify why he goes on this vigilante spree. They also uh, bring in the character of uh, Stuart Mangolin, uh, basically known as Angel from the Rockford Files. In the movie, Bronson has to fly out to Arizona. That's where he meets this character. This character gives him his gun that he uses on a killing spree. In the book, he just buys a gun in New York City. But here, we have somebody who's sort of a gun nut in the movie, and he puts the idea in Bronson's head. So that's how, that's another difference between the movie and the book. Now, they were worried that Bronson was going to want Jill Ireland in this movie because he worked on a movie called The Mechanic, and he threatened to walk off the movie if they didn't have a part for his wife. That wasn't the case here because he didn't want his wife to be humiliated by a brutal beating and rape scene. So they got Hope Lang to do it instead, who was a, a very, very wonderful character actress. They bring up that while they were filming, Bronson was on set. He was always professional, but he was always aloof. He never stuck around longer than he had to. He would do the scene and then he would go back into his trailer. They also mention all, like, they're, they're, this movie was um, like a jumpstart for a lot of actors. They, when they hired the thugs for the rape scene, Jeff Goldblum is one of the thugs. Olympio Dukakis is in this movie, who starred with Vincent Gardenia in Moonstruck. Christopher Guest from Saturday Night Live and all of his own movies. Sonia Manzano, 
Manzano. She was from Sesame Street of all. So we had a Sesame Street actress in here. And then we had Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who all course played Freddie Boom Boom Washington in Welcome Back, Cotter. So they were talking about the filming. They changed the ending of the movie, of course. Paul Kersey does not get gunned down by the three punks. He's told to get out of New York. He ends up in Chicago. And then there's that famous scene where all of these punks start harassing somebody in the Chicago airport. And Bronson does that famous scene where he makes a gun with his fingers and points it at him. And there was a lot of controversy between Winner and Bronson. Winner was like, you got to do it. And Bronson and some other people involved was like, well, no, that defeats the purpose. That means he enjoys killing. And we don't want to make it about a man enjoying killing. But Winner's like, but he does enjoy killing. He does enjoy cleaning up the streets and getting the undesirable people off the streets. It went back and forth. And basically, Winner said, the reason we shot the scene was because Bronson hated to be late for dinner. He wanted, when he was done working, he was done working. So he said, instead of Bronson standing there in the airport arguing, he just did the scene. And eventually, when that became one of the most iconic scenes in movie history, Winner said that Bronson said that he came up with the idea. The odd thing was, um, so they shot in New York, then they shot in Arizona, they had some scenes in Arizona, and then they shot the scene in Hawaii. So uh, Hope Lang, after doing her beating rape scene, <laughs> got the fly to, to Hawaii and do some love scenes with Charles Bronson. I guess that's the way to shoot it. I would rather shoot the bad stuff first and the good stuff second. And with the good stuff. And then they hired Herbie Hancock to do the soundtrack. Uh, Michael Winner's girlfriend, she was really into jazz at the time because Dino De Laurentiis wanted to skimp on the soundtrack. Uh, Michael didn't want to do that. And then his girlfriend introduced him to Herbie Hancock. He listened to one of Herbie Hancock's albums. He loved it. So he hired Herbie Hancock to do the soundtrack for the movie. You know that Death Wish was almost called Sidewalk Vigilante? Yeah. They didn't like death in the title. And Dino De, Dino De Laurentiis was apprehensive of that. And he wanted to change it to Sidewalk Vigilante, which just sounds like a, like a B-movie. That just sounds like a B-movie title. I mean, I guess Death Wish does too. but it Because, they, first of all, they didn't want to associate it with the book because the book didn't sell that well. But then if the book didn't sell that well, most people wouldn't even know that this comes from a book. And actually, posters were made. With sidewalk vigilante on him. But at the last moment, Dino had a change of heart. And he said, well, maybe with death in the title, it'll attract some horror fans. They may think it's a horror movie and come see it. Always the businessman. Always thinking. Thank God we still have Death Wish and not Sidewalk Vigilante. The movie came out in July, on July 24th, 1974. Mega hit right off the bat. It was such a big hit, they actually raised the ticket prices of just Death Wish. So if you were going to the movies and all the other movies were a dollar, they were charging a dollar fifty for Death Wish. That's how popular this movie was. And they said the only other movie they've done that for was Godfather. We're never going to see this again, where people lined up around the blocks to see movies. With streaming and all that, but people were lined up around the blocks to see this movie. And they were just cheering. They were standing in their seats. When, when all this happened. And now Garfield, who saw the movie, wasn't happy with the movie. He wasn't happy with the violence. He especially wasn't happy with the rape scene. The rape scene filmed by Michael Winner was one of the most graphic 
scenes in a major motion picture ever at the time. Especially with Hope Lang in it, who was known as a very classy actress at the time. Because in the book, all the scenes of violence happen, quote-unquote, off-screen. We, you know, he doesn't go into detail describing them. But Michael Winter felt that I, he had to go, once again, he had to go into detail and show the rape and show the beating to put people in the right mindset to get behind Bronson's character. But uh, Brian Garfield, he didn't like that. He felt the book and the movie shouldn't have been about the crime. It should have been the effect that crime had on Paul Kersey slash Paul Benjamin. And Michael Winter just called him an idiot. He's like, he, you know, his book sold three copies. My movie's going through the roof, so why don't you just, why don't you just shut up? To the, and the movie did have mixed reviews. This was a real, this was a classic. You either love it or hate it movie. People were either just cheering its praises, putting it at the top ten movies in 1974, or just calling it exploitive garbage. There was no middle ground with this movie. And I guess if you're going to have a movie, I guess the, the worst thing a movie can be is middle ground. And this movie had no middle ground. People either loved it or people either hated it. New Yorkers actually got a, a special kick out of it. it. The movie did really well all, all over the country, but especially in New York, since it was shot in New York. Bronson wanted to shoot it in L.A. And Michael Winner's like, no, you got to shoot it in New York. And if you ever see the movie, it just captures 1970 New York. It was just just how it was. I mean, it had to be an exciting and dangerous time living there in, in, in the 70s. The movie made $20 million in the U.S., $20 million in 1970s money. And the movie was such a big hit that not only did it give a boost to Bronson's other two movies, which just came out, Mr. Majestic and The Stone Killer, it also gave two, two other of his movies, Violent Acts, and Cold Sweat, which were only released in Europe, they got a U.S. release date. So this movie, so up to this point, Bronson was a major movie star all over the world, except the U.S. He was voted the international star of the decade, because his movies in Europe and Asia and South Africa were just going through the roof. They said, somebody said that they're in Japan, there's just a billboard with Charles Bronson's picture on it. Not promoting a movie, not promoting anything. It's just his picture. That's how big he was in, in everywhere but the U.S. And he had minor hits in the U.S. This was his first major hit in the U.S. So he finally conquered the U.S. market with this movie. Like I said, it went on. It had legs. It, it was actually released on CBS, highly edited. Um, and... People were afraid that when this movie was released, it would have people actually try to become vigilantes, and a couple of cases of that did happen. When Bronson was asked about this, he said, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading from the book, why did you make this movie? What I'm doing isn't art, it's entertainment. I'm not in movies for social reform. I'm in films for the money. We don't make movies for the critics. They don't pay for them anyhow. So that's how he justified all the bad reviews and everybody just taking, taking stabs at him and his acting. And, of course, now Death Wish is a certified classic. That is Chapter 1, Death Wish, 1974. Now we're going to Chapter 2, Death Wish 2. It happened once before. Some muggers followed my wife and daughter home from the market. It's about to happen again. The police there got a very good description of the muggers, too. 
but it didn't do any good. We do what we can. And so does he. Is this your daughter, Mr. Kersey? Kersey. Is that Carol? When murder and rape are the crimes, Bronson is the only punishment. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 2. There's something else you should know, sir. Paul Kersey now lives in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Now you tell me there's a vigilante out there. You believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, you're going to meet him. He killed nine people in New York City four years ago. The people he killed were muggers. He became a hero. What did he look like? He was... He was a very good citizen, that's what he was. That guy saved our lives, damn it. Where the hell were you guys, giving out parking tickets? When violence rules the city, when the police can't stop it, one man will, his way. Watch out! Death Wish had a lot of imitators. There's just a whole list of vigilante movies that came out in the late 70s and early 80s based on de- based on Death Wish. Uh, Golden and Globus, Canon, I'll just say Canon films, they came along. And Canon, man, most of my childhood, not my childhood, but my teenage years was watching Canon films. And Canon films came along and they wanted to make a movie with a big star. They had they had a lot of like lowbrow sleazy movies, Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, stuff like that. But they wanted to make a big movie with a big star. And then they decided they wanted to make Death Wish 2. And what they did was what they would do is like at the beginning of the year, they'd get together all the projects that they were going to start filming that year, and one of those projects was Death Wish 2, which they didn't have the rights to at that point. And then Dino De Laurentiis, who still had the rights to Death Wish, actually made him an ultimatum. It's like, you can get sued. You can't do that. What you have to do now is pay me and the other producers for the rights to Death Wish, and then you can make the movie. And with their backs against the wall, Golan and Globus paid De Laurentiis. So now they had the rights to Death Wish, and they could do what they would want with Death Wish. So now that they have the rights with Death Wish, they had to get a script. They hired this kid named David Engelblack to write a draft. The first draft, they turned it into the producers, and the first draft was so bad, they sent it back. And it's like, we can't shoot this shit. Give it another try. Now, while he was rewriting the script, they also had to get Bronson, who, at this point, after Death Wish came out, he had a string of hit movies in the late 70s, but then by the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, he was losing steam. He didn't have, his name didn't have the same marquee appeal as it did in the 70s. And Bronson, he took that for what it was. He's like, nobody stays on top forever. I could retire now, but I'm just going to keep on working. They wanted to make Death Wish 2, and they wanted to get Bronson. Cannon contacted Bronson's 
agent at the time, and said, we want him to make a Death Wish 2. Pass the message on. His uh, agent said, he doesn't want to make Death Wish 2. And Golan and Globus said, wait a minute. Before he says no, let him read the script. And his agent goes, Charlie, as they call him, Charlie doesn't read scripts. I read the script. If I like the script, I will send it to him. They said, fine. So they got back to David, who was writing a new script, and said, when you finish the script, give it to us, and we will send it to the agent, and if the agent likes it, he will send it to Bronson. And what the writer did was, he finished it up, and he was so excited, he brought one of those maps to the stars, you know, the Hollywood stars' homes, and he went to Bronson's house himself and dropped off the script. And Bronson was furious. Bronson hated people coming to his house. I think Bronson hated people in general. But he hated people coming to this house. So what Bronson contacts his agent. His agent contacts uh, Golan and Globus, Cannon. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? We told you not to send it to Bronson. And they're confused because they don't know what the writer has done this. And they're like, we didn't send anybody. And then they get to the writer. It's like, what the hell did you do? And he's like, like, I got so excited. I needed to get my script to Bronson. Well, he goes, well, guess what? Now he's really not going to do the movie. But cooler heads prevailed. Bronson got the script. He wasn't crazy about the script, but Golden Globus was going to give him a huge payday again. So he agreed to. So now they had the script, they had the rights, and they had Bronson. So then they started casting the movie. The only person from the original that came back was Vincent uh, Gardena as a... as the police lieutenant. Everybody else was new. Jill Ireland, who was not in the first movie, was going now is in the second movie. And since Jill Ireland was Bronson's love interest, and the love interest in Death Wish movies, it does not work out well, what they had to do was they had to move the victim over to the woman who played Charles Bronson's housekeeper. They also say that the timeline doesn't work up because it's 1982 now and the original movie took place in 1974 so this is an eight-year difference but Bronson says my daughter's been in a coma for three years so much like the Friday the 13th movies the Death Wish movies the timeline it doesn't add up so don't get too caught up in the minutiae of the timeline of the Death Wish movies They also had to hire a bunch of new punks in this movie, such as in the first movie, one of the punks was Jeff Goldblum. In this movie, one of the punks was Lawrence Fishburne. So in two Death Wish movies, two of the rapists uh, became major, major movie stars. And they, t- you know, and they were talking about the audition process that these these guys had to go through. They actually went into a room and had to fake rape a chair in front of Michael Winner, because Michael Winner is back, too, to direct. When they got everything lined up, Golan was going to... Mahakman Golan, I believe. I'm, if I'm mispronouncing the name, I apologize. Mahakman Golan was going to direct, and Bronson's like, I'm not going to do it unless Michael Winner directs again. And Michael Winner, after Death Wish, had a bunch of flops, too. So he needed this pick-me-up as well. So this was a pick-me-up for Bronson and Michael Winner. So they had everything in line. 
they say the budget was between eight and ten million dollars. However, they also said that Canon likes to inflate inflate their prices, so they said the movie probably cost around three million dollars. Bronson's salary was one point five million dollars. So if that is true, I don't know if Bronson's salary came out of the movie, but Bronson's salary is half of the movie budget. <clears throat> he, this movie is now set in Los Angeles. Uh, Bronson has bounced around. Once again, it's brought out that Bronson was, he kept to himself. He's not a people person. The The thing that this movie corrected that wasn't in the first movie, or maybe not corrected, but like in the first movie, Bronson was a vigilante. He was helping everybody. In this movie, he's just helping himself because we have another graphic rape scene. It's actually worse than the, the rape scene in the original movie. And if you've watched the canon documentary, it comes out that Michael Winner might have been a bit of a perv, to so to say, because, you know, he once again, he filmed this graphic rape scene. And from the actors, it was, from what was told is, the, they, they treated it professionally. And when the rape scene was done, all the actors, uh, you know, the actress, they all hugged. They all knew it was a scene. This sounds odd, but it, it's like they tried to they tried to put up a safe environment for the rape scene, which sounds really really odd. They also say that a lot of the scenes shot in the streets of Los Angeles. They didn't like the extras that were sent, so what they did was uh, Michael Winter just went behind and just took a bunch of people that were standing around and used them as extras. So when you see all those scenes where Bronson is walking down the street in L.A. in the '80s, those are real street people. They are not extras. Michael brought them in because he wanted it to look authentic. And some of, and those are some of the best-looking shots in the film. It's also brought out that, you know, Jill Ireland, who plays uh, Bronson's girlfriend in the movie, the worst scenes in the movie are with between her and him. Michael Winner also comments on that he was disappointed that uh, Charles Bronson got a facelift. <laughs> so, tough guy Charles Bronson got a facelift. And he wasn't happy about that. He liked, you know, the the... the you know, this, the, the, the craggly look. Craggly? Is that a word? Craggly? Look that Bronson had. It's also brought out that, and I think this has uh, been um, documented before, is you couldn't be in a scene with Bronson if you were taller than him. Bronson was about 5'10". Um, so if you were in a scene with him, like Jeff Goldblum was six foot four, but he was not in the scene with Bronson in the first movie. If you had to act opposite of Bronson, you had to be shorter than him. You had to be shorter than 5'10", which I also heard is the thing with uh, Chuck Norris, too. If you're taller than that, he'll you know he'll be in a fight scene with you. But if you're talking one-on-one -on -one in a scene, you can't be taller than that. Also an interesting fact was that Bronson, one of Bronson's brothers was a derelict, a bum. And while they were shooting on the streets of L.A., he actually came up to Bronson while he was shooting. And Bronson took him aside and gave him a few bucks. And uh, his brother ended up being stabbed in a hotel room later, which was sad. Uh, but for the most part, they said that the filming went fine. Once again, Michael Winner, he edited this movie back in London. They didn't want to get Herbie Hancock again. They actually, they hired Isaac Hayes behind Winner's back, which sort of pissed him off. And he was neighbors with Jimmy Page. So he goes, I'll just get Jimmy Page to do it. So he just went over next door and got Jimmy Page to do the soundtrack to Death Wish 2. Now, the thing is... With all the violence and the rape scene in the first one, they had no problem getting an R rating. With this one, 
they threatened to give it an X unless they cut it. So they had to do a lot of cutting in this movie. They had to cut the rape scene down. There's actually two rape scenes between uh, Bronson's housekeeper and then Bronson's daughter. And they had to cut both of those down significantly. They also had to cut down the the scene where the daughter gets impaled on a fence. They had to they, they had to do a lot of cutting to get it down to an R rating, which struck Michael Winner as odd because he had no problem getting an R for the first one. But they but they got it down to an R. Uh, they released it, and let me tell you something: the reviews were brutal. They were just this is just. They, they picked apart the movie. They picked apart Bronson. I don't think this movie got one positive review. But, once again, it proved that Bronson and the Death Wish series, $8 million is, well, you know, it said 8 to 10, maybe 3. Let us go high end. We'll go with a 10. It made $16 million in the States, and it made $28 million overseas. So that's close to $50 million. On a test. So it made, we'll say generously, it made four times its budget, which is fantastic. And it actually helped Canon, because what it also says in this chapter is Canon Movies was notorious for not paying their actors on time. They were always searching for money. And I highly recommend watching the Canon documentary. I actually did a podcast on the Canon documentary if you want to go back and listen to that. But all the actors. Except for Bronson, Bronson and Jill Ireland, they got paid up front. But all the other actors, they, you know, it took them a while to get paid. And they weren't paid what they were promised at the beginning. But the movie comes out. It's a big hit. The reviews are terrible. And a lot of people involved in the movie, including Bronson, were not happy with it. They just felt it was... Uh, just a slight rehash of the first one. There was nothing nothing really new in this one. Which is true. And a lot of people, it says in the book, that a lot of Death Wish fans feel that like this number two is the weakest of all the Death Wish films. I am a big fan of Death Wish 2. I, li- I like all the Death Wish movies. I know they're just popcorn fun. The first one is a legitimate classic, but I like them all. But the, the movie was a hit now that Golan and Globus... Canon had the rights to Death Wish. They could do as long as they could bring Bronson back, they would bring him back. And that's what we're gonna do. So now we're gonna talk about Death Wish 3. New York, a city pushed to the edge. People pushed to the limit, and no one's got the guts to stop them. It's collection time, Charlie. Three murders, four rapes, nine acts of random violence. This isn't a neighborhood, it's a war. But there is one way, one man who won't be pushed, Charles Bronson. What's the problem? Now you're going to die. It'll be just like before, Mr. Vigilante, with one important difference. You're going to work for me. People have got to start to fight back and hard. I sent them a message. That's him. I'll take care of him. And now, he's in the middle of a war. See what you've done? You got me mad. In a world gone mad, there is only one law. His. Charles Bronson. Death Wish 3.
Bronson's back in New York. Bringing justice to the streets. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 3. Okay, so Death Wish 2 was a big hit for Golan and Globus, uh, for Canon Films. But they wanted more. They wanted clout. So what they did was, and they got away, and if you watch the Canon documentary, this is sort of the beginning of the end, their concept was low budgets, high returns. That way, the movie had a better chance, had a better chance of making a profit if you kept the budget low. Well, they started to get away from that because they wanted their awards. They just didn't want to be known as the schlock action people. They wanted their awards. So they were going after... Uh, directors and actors and what happened was they eventually signed Stallone to do over the top for 12 million dollars and from that point it was pretty much downhill from there during all this what was keeping them afloat was their action movies they had Chuck Norris with a missing in action and they had Michael Dudikoff with American Ninja and they had Charles Bronson so Charles Bronson stuck with Canon he made seven films with them over six years so it was pretty prolific this late in his life that he had this renaissance with Canon. He did 10 to Midnight, which did very well. And they proved that it could do a Bronson movie that didn't have Death Wish in the title, could make money. However, they still wanted to cash in on the Death Wish name. So they had this script, and they had Bronson under contract, so they didn't have to worry about that. They had this script where Bronson went back to New York and he just mowed down these punks. The original script was written by a, a sci-fi writer. And if you watch Death Wish 3, you can see that. It looks like a post-apocalyptic neighborhood instead of like a real neighborhood in New York. Bronson looked at the script. He hated the script. So they hired Gail Morgan Hickman, who had a couple of Dirty Harry movies under his belt, to rewrite the script. Because, you know, Bronson and Eastwood, they're, they're in the same vein there. The, the Dirty Harry movies were much, you know, better received than the Death Wish movies. But they went with him. He wrote three summaries of Death Wish movies. And then apparently Bronson went with the original. So... <laughs> They brought back Michael Winner again because, once again, after Death Wish 2, his career, he didn't have any hits after Death Wish 2. Winner and Bronson were sort of in a pickle where they were at that point in their career where they weren't getting offers. Winner says that Bronson would like to be doing romantic comedies, but at 62 at the time, 63, he wasn't getting offers, but they offered him Death Wish 3. So, you know, he took that instead, and they ended up going with the original script of where Bronson goes back to New York, and he cleans up these street punks. Also, they mentioned that in the movie, there was uh, uh, Martin Balsam is in the movie, and Ed Lauder was in the movie. Martin Balsam was an Academy Award-nominated actor. He was on the downslide of his career. The book says that these characters, none of them come off looking well in the movie. And if you watch the movie, that's kind of true. It's like these are professional actors. They've been doing it their entire lives. And they just work with what was given to them. His, and this also starts with the female lead, which is 30, 20 to 30 years younger than Bronson. In the first one, in the first two, 
you know, his wife slash girlfriend were age appropriate. Now, from this point on, it's going to be these women are just 20, 25, 30 years younger than Bronson. They had to hire street punks for this movie. And the head street punk was Kevin O'Hearley. I know him as, he's been in a ton of movies, but he was Richie Cunningham's brother in the first couple episodes of Happy Days and then just disappeared. Now, as I mentioned in the previous chapter, Bronson didn't like acting with anybody who was taller than him. O'Hearley was six foot three. And if you watch the movie, they're never in a scene together. They're together in the last scene when Bronson blows him away with a bazooka, but they're never standing side to side. So Bronson had this thing where if you were in the scene with him, you had to be shorter than him. And at being at 5'10", which wasn't really hard. Most actors are short to begin with. And 5'10 is not incredibly short. You know, I, I don't know why Bronson got hung up on that, but, but he was. And uh, one of the punks they found now in the first one, we found Jeff Goldblum. In the second one, we found Lawrence Fishburne. And in this one, we find Alex Winter of uh, Bill and Ted fame. So he was one of the street punks in there. We also have uh, Marina Sirtis, who uh, went on to be Counselor Troy in in the Star Trek Next Generation TV show and movies. We'll talk more about her later. And Winner was like, he didn't want the dark tone of the first two. He wanted this one, he uses the term lighthearted, but he wanted it to be fun and not have any moral qualms about it like the first two have. He just wanted this to be a fun, off-the-hook action comedy, action black comedy, as he put it. And that's what we get. If you've ever seen Death Wish 3, it is. I feel Death Wish 3 might be the greatest movie ever made because it is just glorious with the violence and the shooting and the burning. Now, before the movie started, I don't know if you guys remember Bernard Goetz, who was the subway vigilante in New York. He got arrested right before Death Wish 3 started filming. And a lot of people were blaming Death Wish, not Death Wish 3, but a lot of women, a lot of people were blaming Death Wish on Bernard Goetz. And as Michael Winner points out in the book, Death Wish was in 74. This is 85. So if it took him 11 years to, to catch on, he's not a very bright vigilante. And uh, somebody asked Bronson if they did Death Wish 3 to cash in on Bernard's Getz. And he's like, no, the script's been written for years. I've been under contract for years. It's just a coincidence that this happened then. Now, even though the movie takes place in New York, a majority of it was shot in England. According to Winner, they recreated New York so well that when the movie came out, Teamsters came up to him and threatened him. It's like, why didn't you use us when you were in New York? And he's like, we weren't in New York. We were in England. And according to Winner, he was, they, they threatened him with bodily harm because they did not believe that this movie took place in England. While in England, Bronson's wife, Jill Ireland, and two of his daughters were over there with him. And you figured that would make him happy, but it didn't because at this time, now Jill Ireland was battling breast cancer. That was in their lives at the time. Jill could just tell that Bronson didn't really want to make this movie because that every time he came home... He was just haggard and worn out, and it just looked like this movie was taking every bit of ounce of energy from him. And Micah Winter said that too, because as he got older, he wanted to do less and less stunts. He wanted the action to be toned down. He had to chase a punk, and he was like, well, I got to warm up before I chase a punk. And he said the guns were hurting his ears. And Winter recalls a story. It's like, well, Chuck, 
You don't want to chase them and you don't want to shoot them. What are you going to do? Open a hot dog stand and poison them? According to stories, that got a wry smile out of Charles Bronson and he, he did the scenes as they were written. Also in the movie, he orders a, a wildly 45 Magnum. W-I-L-D-E-Y. A wildly 45 Magnum. Once people saw this movie, the sales of that gun went up 30%. Because it was a very, as they said in the movie, it's sort of like a shorter barrel version of an African elephant gun. Between everything, the, the shooting went fine. There is, of course, another rape scene in there with Maria Sirtis. So this is three death wishes in the movie that have a rape scene. And the thing with this is, um, Golan from Golan and Globus was actually using the rape scene to promote it uh, at, a, at a film premiere. It's like Death Wish 3 has a rape scene that you're not going to believe. I don't know what he was thinking when he was doing that, but that's what he was doing. Maria Sirtis is the rape victim. If you watched the canon documentary, Maria Sirtis says that Michael Winner... Michael Winner in the book says he didn't have any problem shooting the rape scene. But if you talk to Maria Sirtis, uh, if you don't not talk to her, but if you hear Maria, her, Maria Sirtis talk about it, he said that he was a real perv shooting it. And she thanked, her, she thanked everybody who loved Star Trek so she didn't have to make movies like Death Wish 3 anymore. Because the movie she did before this was with Faye Dunaway for canon, and she got whipped topless. Winner edited the movie again. The music is credited to uh, Jimmy Page, but he had nothing to do with it. So what happened was uh, Winner took bits and pieces of the soundtrack from Death Wish 2 and used it in this movie, and then had another musician come in and fill in the rest. But Jimmy Page gets credit as doing the music for Death Wish 3. Once again, the movie got an X, but this time Winner went up to the board and he said, you know, and he fought. He knew what he had to do. He cited, he goes, well, Death Wish 3 has 63 deaths, but Rambo had 80 deaths. But Rambo got an R, why are we getting an X? And according to Winner, one of the women on the board said, because most of those people were Vietnamese, which yikes out. And Winner, once again, he wanted this movie to be promoted as a black comedy. He goes, it's a very, very funny movie. If you watch the movie, it is funny, but not for some of the... Re I mean, they quote dialogues, cabbage is good, and you know, a lot of, of, of the lines in the movie are very, very quotable for the wrong reason. And it's also very laughable, the over-the-top violence in the, in the movie. Garfield, once again, he's still getting money. So every time a Death Wish movie is made, he's getting money. And he watched the second one. He wasn't happy with the second one. And he really wasn't happy with the third one. He stopped watching them after this. He did say... Now, however, in Death Wish 3, there are two elements of the original Death Wish novel, which are in this movie, which is The Giggler which is, was a, a Puerto Rican mugger who giggled. That was in the original. And Paul Kersey slash Paul Benjamin using a car as bait to lure people in. That was in the original novel and also in this movie. Bronson didn't like the movie. He said it was too over the top and he said it was too violent. But uh, Golan and Globus, canon, loved the movie. They loved the violence. Once again, critics lambasted it. I, I don't think this got one positive review. And I think they were, you know, at this point, you go into these movies, you know you're not going to get a positive review at all. It's all going to be negative coming from the, from the critics' point of view. The movie ended up making $16 million after a seven-week run. But once they released it overseas, it just became a huge blockbuster overseas. And then also 
with uh, the the video cassette and at that time the laser disc their tried and true death wish it came through again it was you know it, basically charles bronson and chuck norris was keeping canon afloat while they were trying to do all this other stuff the thing is that uh, gremlin graphics released a death wish 3 video game which i would have loved to play i'd love to find that somewhere and play. Also, uh, Winner makes a joke about Charles Bronson being in the wheelchair, making Death Wish 24, which is sort of funny because The Simpsons actually did a kind of a joke like that in one of their episodes. Charles Bronson in Death Wish 17. I wish I were dead. Another thing which they mention in is they went from, they, they were going to use the Roman numeral 3, but they used the regular letter 3 because they thought and this, I know this has happened with other movies where they didn't think people would understand Roman numerals. Okay, four, maybe, but three. You just count three. One, two, three. I can't believe that they thought people were that stupid. Well, people are that stupid. Anyway, but so that's why it went from Roman numerals to regular numbers. And now, at this point, Bronson stayed with Canon, and Winner, he left Canon. So this was the last Bronson, Winner, Death Wish Actually, this la- it was the last Bronson Winter collaboration at all. So this was their swan song. Winter loved the movie. Bronson hated the movie. But it kept canon afloat. And this all leads to our next chapter and our next movie, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Two kids looking for a new thrill. They hit you just like I promised. Yeah, sure. But this time, the thrill went too far. Crack has claimed another victim. Dealers are making up their own rules, and no one is able to stop them. Somebody has got to crack down. Who are you? Death. Charles Bronson in the biggest death wish ever. They have to be stopped, cousin. Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Spent a small fortune buying information on the major drug dealers in Los Angeles. I'll handle this my own way, no interference from you. He's working to destroy the drug empire. It's a either him or us. Now, Bronson is their target. The trap is set. Here he comes. The fuse is lit. Bronson is unleashed. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. So now it's the late 80s, and Golden and Globus, they wanted a box office smash. They had minor hits with their movies, but they didn't have a really blockbuster. Up to that point, their highest grossing movie was Chuck Norris's Missing in Action at $38 million. And they thought they were going to get it with Over the Top, with Stallone. They paid him $12 million, they promoted the hell out of the movie, and it flopped. So now Golden and Globus went back to their tried and true where they had, uh, it was 1987, they had like three dozen movies set to be shot and released that year. They were going to keep them all under $5 million. That was the thing. Keep it under $5 million. 
and one of the movies was, of course, going to be Death Wish 4. Now, Pancho Corner was brought in to produce, and he was the son, his father was actually a producer in Hollywood as well, and he was trying to talk Bronson out of doing the original Death Wish. And also, at this point, Michael Winner had left. So they brought in J. Lee Thompson to direct the movie. He made a lot of movies with Winner. He made a lot of movies with J. Lee Thompson. Bronson didn't like working with new people. He liked working with people that he knew. Everybody knew that when they brought somebody in to work on a Bronson movie. Now, Bronson said of the scripts that he was getting at the time, it's like, they're all violent, so I just need to pick one that has a, a message, a moral value to it. We talked about, I just said, you know, Winner was not directing this one. Winner said he was not interested in it, but there were rumors is that, that Bronson didn't have a lot of fun doing Death Wish 3, so Bronson wanted Winner out. And oddly enough, this was the last collaboration between the two. So I don't know which one is true, but you never work again. You never work with another person again. Maybe the second one had a little validity to it. Brian Garfield, who wrote the original novel, who didn't like Death Wish 2 and 3, actually wrote a spec script for this one. And his spec script was uh, Bring Back Stuart Margolin from Death Wish 1, the one who gave Bronson his gun, you know, the real estate mogul out in Arizona, bring him back. Garfield had a notion that he didn't... Bronson never, as we talked about, Bronson, first of all, doesn't like people taller than him. He also doesn't like to be outshined. In most of Bronson movies, when he becomes a star, you notice that there's no other star name attached to it. And he said that Stuart Margolin might have outshined him in that movie. I'm going to push back on that a little because the movie he did before this was Murphy's Law, which I think is a very good movie. His uh, sidekick in the movie, an actress's name who I can't remember, but he's handcuffed to her and she's just as foul-mouthed. She steals every scene that they're in together. So he was okay with that. Why wouldn't he be okay with Stuart Margola? I don't know. Just my thought on that one. So they brought in Gail Gordon Hickman to write Death Wish 4. Remember last episode, last episode, last chapter, he wrote a, a treatment for Death Wish 3, which they didn't use, but they remembered him and brought him back for Death Wish 4. And his original script, which I would have loved to have seen, was that Paul Kersey's at the end of his rope. He's just tired of being a vigilante. He's haunted by all the people that he kills. He reaches out to Jill Ireland, his girlfriend from Death Wish 2. And he wants to get back together with her. And he says, I'm done being a vigilante. I'm just going to be Paul Kersey, an architect. And in this script, they get together. They get married. They're in a grocery store. These punks come in and take everybody in the back room and shoot everybody. Everybody dies but Bronson. He got shot in the head, but he survived. And he gets out of his coma. And what he does is he captures the punks. And he presents them to the police, but they get off because they can't trust Bronson's testimony because he has a head wound. So then Bronson has to go. He goes to Jill Ireland's grave and says, I have to break your promise. And then he goes out and he kills all the punks himself. That sounds like a great movie. However, they couldn't get Jill Ireland to agree because at that point she was in the middle of battling breast cancer. And she didn't want to focus on death. She didn't want to play a, a character that died. It was all about positivity in her life. So she turned it down, and when she turned it down, Bronson turned it down. From what he said was, 
even it was pay or play. So even though Hickman wrote this script, if they didn't use it, they'd still have to pay him. He said he was going through a divorce at the time. He wanted to keep working. He banged out another script, which was close to the script of Dead or Alive, the Rutger Hauer, Gene Simmons movie. So they had to scrap that one. And then they finally came down with the script that they did use for Death Wish 4, where they actually taken, they have taken out all the punks, and now the bad guys are a well-run organization. No more street punks, a well-run organization. And for those of you who don't know, Death Wish 4, this millionaire hires Kersey to kill all the drug dealers. It turns out the drug dealer, the millionaire is actually a drug dealer himself. I'm not, I'm not here to review the movie. That's just rehash of Death Wish 4. So they hired actresses. They hired Kay Lenz to be Bronson's love interest, who was 34 when this movie was made. Bronson was in his mid-60s. So now we continue the trope of Bronson having a much, much younger woman as his girlfriend slash wife. They hired Adana Barron, who was most famously known as Chevy Chase's daughter in the first Vacation movie. She's the catalyst. She's the one that's going to get the, the plot started. And then, of course, John P. Ryan, who plays the millionaire slash drug dealer. So they've got all these people in, in line. The movie starts, and it's brought up that uh, J. Lee Thompson was a big drug and alcohol abuser in the 60s and 70s. He drank a lot. They said he used LSD. He snorted cocaine. In fact, William Peter Blatty when he wrote uh, The Exorcist, there is a drunk director in that movie, uh, in the book and in the movie, and he modeled that director after J. Lee Thompson. But it has been said that uh, by this time, it came rolling around, Thompson was clean, he wasn't drinking. Thompson was 73 when he directed this movie. And he directed a lot more after this movie, so he wasn't slowing down either. This is the first Death Wish movie with no rape and uh, no boobs. Could that be attributed to Michael Winter? I don't know. The shooting went fine. Once again, Bronson was a little more prickly on this movie than the other movies. They would bring him the script of what they were going to shoot for the day, and he'd be like, this sucks, this sucks, I don't want to shoot this. So uh, the writer said there was a lot of rewrite. They couldn't change the scene because cameras were set. They couldn't change the action, but they could change the dialogue. So they did that to pacify Bronson. Bronson would show up in the morning. He would hate the scene that they were shooting. And then you look at the scene they were going to shoot in the afternoon. He's like, I hate this dialogue. So he would have to go and rewrite the dialogue. So he said a majority of the script was rewritten during the shoot just to make Bronson happy. The original ending of the movie, a couple of changes that they made. The original ending of the movie is his girlfriend lives and she flies off. She leaves him, much like Jill Ireland in, in Death Wish 2, but it's changed to where she dies. And also, the ending of Death Wish 4 is where uh, Bronson blows the bad guy away with a rocket launcher. The original death of him was Bronson was going to asphyxiate him in a room full of cocaine. So he was going to die by the drugs that he sold. The director and the writer felt that the eventually felt like the death needed to be one-on-one. -on -one. They needed to be looking at each other. We also have now, continuing the trait, in the first movie they have Jeff Goldblum, second movie they have Lawrence Fishburne, third movie they have Alex Winter, and in Death Wish 4, Danny Trejos. Danny Trejos shows up 
as a mob guy that gets blown up by a wine bottle. That was another thing that Bronson was worried about. He was getting older, and he was worried about looking stupid on film. So he would always make sure that he was never shot at an angle or never did anything that would make him look sick or weak or old. So he was very conscious about that. The movie came out. So, oh, also the movie was scored. I got to put this. The movie was scored by Bronson's stepsons, Paul McCallan and Valentin McCallan. They scored the movie. The movie comes out. It's a decent hit in the movie theaters. However, it is a monster hit on home video. It's the biggest one out of all the Death Wish movies. It was like 100,000 copies of this movie was purchased by video suppliers. So they wouldn't run out. So there wouldn't be a gap. Nobody had to wait for the movie. Death Wish 4 makes some money. Keeps Bronson in the limelight. But it couldn't keep Golan and Globus afloat. Cannon had to file for bankruptcy. All their shady business deals finally caught up with them at this time. So they filed for bankruptcy in 1989. Also in 1989, Jill Ireland died of her breast cancer. And when people, when that happened, people said it just took the wind out of Charles Bronson's sails because everybody, no matter how cranky, no matter how curmudgeon Bronson was, whenever he saw Jill Ireland, his face lit up. He really, really loved her. And when she died, to quote the book, it said it just took the wind out of his sail. So when Golan and Globus, when Cannon filed for bankruptcy, they had a falling out. They separated. Golan started his own production company. And one of the things that Golan was going to do with his production company, you guessed it, Death Wish 5. the world of glamour and high fashion. A new crime syndicate is taking over. Peekaboo. I watched this guy coming up through the Irish gangs and now he's ruthless. He's infiltrated every aspect of my business. Their methods are brutal. Promise me if anything should happen to me, he'll take care of Chelsea. Olivia! Gone. The one thing they didn't count on was an enemy who wouldn't back down. You know, these people, they steal, they murder, destroy people's lives and get away with it. Kersey's no amateur. You've got a problem. Charles Bronson is back. I'm coming for you, O'Shea. And this time, he's not leaving until his wish is their command. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. Let the cops take these guys down. Sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. It's showtime. History. Boys and girls. Charles Bronson. Guns make you nervous? Death Wish. Okay, I mentioned earlier that Jill Ireland died in 1989. I was incorrect about that. She died in May of 1990. And after she died, Bronson took some time off from acting. And then when he came back, he did a couple of TV movies. 
But Golan, who had his own production company now, wanted to get him back in the full and get him back on the big screen. Because Golan had a string of flops with his new production company, so he wanted to get a name and he wanted to get the Death Wish series back. Because he had the script of Death Wish 5. The original script was written by J. Lee Thompson and Gail Morgan uh, Hickman, who wrote and directed number four. Golan had the script, but it was too expensive to shoot. He hired Michael Colliday to streamline the script, and he hired Steve Carver to direct. Golan got Bronson, and one of the stipulations that Bronson had with making a new Death Wish movie is he wanted it to be less violent. So they went back and forth with Bronson. He was in his 70s now. He was 72 when they started to make this movie. So the script went through a bunch of rewrites, and Steve Carver was set to direct. Then Golan moved the shoot to Canada to save money. And after the shoot was moved to Canada, uh, Steve Carver was let go because when you shoot in Canada, you do get a break. You did a, you know, it's cheaper. You get a tax break. However, certain roles have to be filled by Canadians, and director was one of them. So they had to have a Canadian director for this movie. And they hired Alan H. Goldstein, who knew Bronson before. So him and he, him and Bronson, he and Bronson had a relationship before this movie. Now the thing is, the movie only cost five million dollars to make, but Bronson also got five million dollars. And according to Goldstein, he didn't ask where the hit five million dollars came from, but that was Bronson's payday. That's what brought him out of retirement, or not retirement, but brought him back to do another Death Wish. It was a huge payday for him. Goldstein also said that Bronson was very involved in rewriting the script. He didn't get a writing credit, but Bronson was involved in redoing the Death Wish 5 script. He wanted it to be more of a black comedy. That's And apparently that's what they, everybody wanted these to be after the first one. Wanted them to be a dark comedy. They've Now they have the script set. They have Bronson. They're up in Canada. They hire their, their cast and crew. One of the best parts of Death Wish 5 is Michael Parks as Tommy O'Shea. He is the bad guy in this movie. He is the reason to watch this movie. Michael Parks steals the movie. His character, if you see Death Wish 5, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Most of Death Wish, most of the Death Wishes were shot outdoors. They didn't, they weren't shot in studios. However, this one, a majority of this is, takes place in a, they built a giant studio up in Canada, which was because it's surrounded by the fashion industry. That's where this movie takes place, in the fashion industry. So they had this studio built and that's where all these scenes so a majority of this movie was shot in a studio bronson he wasn't as curmudgeon on this one uh, according to a lot of people on this movie he was happier he was he stuck around he didn't you know he wasn't griping and, and now once again that might have something to do with the fact that he helped shape the screenplay so when when they brought him pages he couldn't say it sucked because he helped make it however you know the the last 
couple of death wishes. His wife was sick, Jill Ireland. She had since passed. He probably grieved. He was over it now. Or he, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say that he was over it, but he didn't have that hanging over his head. So he was much lighthearted on the set. He stuck around. They say he never complained about having to stay late. That was something that changed from earlier. I guess he just mellowed. Bronson just mellowed with old age. Some people do, some people don't. And he did. He he couldn't do the stunts that he wanted to do. I mean, he, said he was 72, so he, he couldn't do a lot of stunts. So the script was rewritten where, and if you've watched the movie, he's a lot more clever on how he eliminates the bad guys in this movie. And that was a lot having to do with Charles Bronson. That's what he wanted in the script for his character to do. Once again, the, the movie was not a lot of problems on the movie. Uh, Golan uh, left them alone up there in Canada. Uh, the movie was made. The movie was edited in Canada. Edited? Edited in Canada? But for some reason, they say that Bronson wasn't around to uh, dub lines because there was a scene in the movie where somebody actually hits a microphone and it's left in the movie so because they couldn't get Bronson to redub it. And I guess they didn't want to use somebody else's voice to redub it. As with just about all the other Death Wish movies before the original, this one got no good reviews. They all made fun of Charles Bronson's age in this movie, which I think is unfair. Because I know he is old in this movie, but he doesn't look old in this movie. And he doesn't, he doesn't do anything in this movie that a 72-year-old couldn't do in real life, if that makes any sense. The movie was released to dollar theaters, you know, and its take in the movies was $1.7 which was way, way lower than all the other Death Wishes. And when it was released on videotape, it wasn't as big as Death Wish 4, but it did okay. If you've seen Death Wish 5, the ending is just Charles Bronson walking off screen saying, if you ever need me, give me a call. Well, this was the last Death Wish with Charles Bronson. Golan wanted to do a Death Wish 6 without Bronson. However, his company went under. Death Wish 6 never came about. And they talk about a remake. So this book came out before the remake. And in the book, they threw around like Arnold Schwarzenegger's name for doing the remake of Death Wish, which of course we all know Bruce Willis did several years later. And that's it. That is Bronson's Loose. This is a, a much longer uh, review than I did before. Lots of spoilers in it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this review, I hope you've learned something from it. I hope you go out and buy the book. There is another book called out, Bronson's Loose, again. I have not read that one, but when I do, I will definitely do a review on that. And I just want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see everybody here next time on the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash scottwhite and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. This should help people find the podcast when they're searching. Uh, no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. Tonight, we review an aging Charles Bronson in Death Wish 9. I wish I was dead. Hey. Cross. Cross.
This has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast.